Clint and Diana, thank you for sharing, uh, for uh, translating. Thank you, Diana. We never would have known what those words meant in the sanctuary wall. Um, and also, Clint, for translating a sense of your experience and the opportunity to understand what God is doing in the world. Uh, God is always at work. So let, me, uh, let me bring this back to a bit of personal reflection. First, a question for all of us. What has your week been like? Clint and Diana shared what was happening with them weeks ago. So let's draw it back into the last seven days or so. What's your week been like? This has been kind of a unique week for me. Uh, it began with my helping to lead worship here at this hour last Sunday and then joining the inquirers class, about 10 or 12 people who are finding out more about ZPC, and I did that at the 10.30 hour. That time was spent with me teaching about six key relationships that we believe in here at ZPC that are vital to helping a person grow in relationship with Christ and in faithfulness to the mission of Jesus. Then Sunday afternoon, I drove down to Greensburg, about an hour, hour and a half from here, to attend for a few minutes a uh, visiting time for a ZPC family and the loss of a family member. So sharing some tears and some laughter and some sense of deep-seated gratitude for the person who had passed on. Sunday evening found me back in town in time to join Laura and walk down the street to some neighbors where six, uh, six of us got together for dinner. Uh, we've been talking about getting together to, uh, for dinner, so I'd say probably for about seven years. Um, <laughs> and it was delightful, pure joy, to finally be at that place for a long evening together. Monday and Tuesday of this week were jam-packed with preparation, uh, preparing for this message this morning. And also, knowing that I was going to be joining a small group that I was invited into about a year, year and a half ago by a group of guys, and we were going away on Friday and Saturday for a retreat, and I was uh, facilitating some of that time. So Monday and Tuesday, jam-packed early in the week with preparation and study and prayer. Um, I also uh, had the opportunity to, by the time I got to Tuesday evening, to know that all of those things were pretty well in place. Um, opportunity later in the week to refine some of those plans, but for the most part, that work was ready. On Wednesday, I joined other members of our session when we walked into a meeting with a group here in our presbytery, a group of elders and pastors, about 40 people who oversee the health and ministry of congregations in this part of Indiana, and also the health and ministry of pastors. We had been invited to come meet with them to talk about this dual track that they have allowed so far and that they understand we're on, a dual track of searching for a new senior pastor and a dual track of considering uh, what we might uh, find out among ourselves about possibly moving into relationship with another denomination. Both of those are early stage in process. And meeting around the tables of that room with those elders and pastors was a remarkable experience. Our session members who could be there, uh, we expressed ourselves well. Uh, there was a wonderful sense of grace, a wonderful sense of honesty, openness, uh, integrity. Uh, we received that back from those who were on the committee. And in the process of all of that, sensed God going before us and collectively enjoying that sense of God's work. Uh, we received word uh, within about a day and a half of that meeting that the Committee on Ministry has received our 
and adopted our uh, mission statement that's been going on the last couple of months, and you all have been a part of that, and given us permission to form a search committee and given us permission to write our church resume and the position description to move into the next stage uh, of this search process. And we can thank God for their favor of that committee in that decision. This is great news in the process. By the time we received that news, I had already been with our staff for um, about 24 hours uh, on a staff retreat where we prayed together, we talked together, we shared, we uh, pursued scripture, we uh, enjoyed fun and laughter and games. We welcomed session members who could make it with their spouses for dinner on Wednesday night for a wonderful time to connect in fresh ways. Um, and all of that led to some wonderful, wonderful conclusions over that 24-hour period as well. So um, it was also then a very special time. And then again, I've already told you that on Friday I left town to be with uh, this group of guys that I've been blessed to be a part of. Uh, and that too showed evidence of richness in our relationships, richness in our relationship with God, richness in God's unfolding plans for us. So, what's your week been like? Let me just give you a second or two to think about that. If you're like me, posed with that question on Sunday morning, without the opportunity to know that question was coming, you may be sitting there going, I can't remember my week. I have no clue what it was like. But I hope God has already prompted you to remember some of your unfolding story from these past days. We've all come the, through these days to just this point in time. And we get to turn our attention to God's written word. And we know in about a half an hour we're going to stand up and walk out of this room into the week that's coming. A long, long time ago, a small group of folks find themselves together in a room in the Middle East. They come to that room out of everything that had happened the week before. They come to that room on their way into the days that are yet to come. And at just this point, their lives intersect. So let's step into their story. Turn with me in your Bibles or the Bibles we placed under chairs around you to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Uh, I'm going to really encourage you to do this, whether it's on your phone or in a printed page, um, because you're going to want to follow not only the reading, we're not going to project it on the screen this morning because it's a rather lengthy reading, but you're also going to want to have uh, access to Scripture so you can kind of test out where we are in the story as I continue to walk us through it this morning. So Luke chapter 7, Luke's the fourth book in the New Testament, and we move to the seventh chapter. As you find your place, let me help us note that Jesus' week uh, has also been quite a week. Uh, and, and, and if we look back over the months, he's just at the early stages of building a relationship with his apprentices, the disciples. He comes to this particular week, he's already been teaching large crowds, um, he's been teaching them about the true ways of God. And in that teaching, Jesus reveals that the way of God is not through accustomed living, but counter-custom living. It's a radical, turn-the-world-upside-down way of being. 
Now, one way to summarize his message is that right relationship with God and others is not about outward appearances, but inward heart. Now, scan chapter 7 with me just for a minute. Go back to verse 1. You're going to see some headings probably in the translation you have. Those are headings that that uh, people who published the Bi- our Bibles put on these texts. They weren't in the original text. But, so you're going to see some key moments here. Um, as we scan this from beginning of verse 1, you're first going to come across an account of a Roman Gentile. Hear that. Roman, the bad guys. Gentile, those far away from God, whose heart is renovated to belief in Jesus. It's absolutely worth looking at in the days to come. A renovated heart and one of the most unlikely people in the land. Then you're also going to see the account, well, let me me first note verse 9 in that part of the story. Jesus says of this man, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And then the next section takes us to the city of the town of Nain, and there he raises a man from the dead. They're just bringing him out of town on the day that he's died, and they're heading out to bury him but he raises him back to life. The amazing details of that event caused the villagers to say in verse 16, a great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. And then, in the middle part of this chapter 7, come the conversation stimulated by disciples of John the baptizer, or John the immerser. Um, And in this conversation, Jesus says, among other things, that people who believe they are the most undeserving before God are actually the greatest in God's eyes. The most undeserving are the greatest. Then comes our text for the morning, starting in chapter 7, verse 36. Follow along as I read. Remember, this is God's holy word. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing not put oil in my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been been forgiven little, loves little. 
Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Anytime we open up God's word, God intends for us to gain understanding by it through his spirit, and I pray that that will be true for every one of us here this morning. Scientific laws are statements based on careful observation, careful observation so that they, someone can explain in concise terms an action or a set of actions. Scientific laws must be simple, They represent the cornerstone of scientific discovery, because if a law ever did not apply, even in one tiny instance, then all science based upon that law would collapse. Now, some of these laws are the law of gravity, Newton's laws of motion, the laws of thermodynamics, Boyle's law of gases, the law of conservation of mass and energy, and this is artificial intelligence, this is artificial intelligence. With our possible law based on my own observations. Now, I think it's simple. I think it's true. But I need you to help me determine if it meets the other two required criteria. Is it also universal and absolute? I call it the law of receptivity. Here it is. The law of receptivity states the ability to give thanks is directly proportional to the ability to receive with a thankful heart. Now let me repeat that. The ability to give thanks is directly proportional to the ability to receive with a thankful heart. Thanksgiving wells up in our hearts and in the hearts of all who know that we have reason to be thankful. If I'm someone who rarely, if ever, takes note of good that has come my way, I will not be a very thankful person can also tell you that receptive hearts well up with thanks. Unreceptive hearts stifle thanks. Our daughter-in-law, our one precious daughter, has begun to, help, begun to help our three and five-year-old grandsons with this law. She doesn't know it's a law yet. I just made it up this week, after all. Tisha refers to our grandsons as her many men, M-I-N-I, men. Now, while she knows they're just young boys, she keeps her eye on the horizon of their lives and relates to them as young men, men being shaped before her eyes and under her guidance. She refers to them in her blog as many men and so has written about them frequently. And it's a big concept. When Jackson and Tucker are taken with moments of ingratitude, Tisha steers them to its opposite. This is how she describes it. When I put their plates down in front of them at the table, they sometimes immediately point out what they don't like. Then I'll have them find and name all the things they are thankful for. It shows they are thankful for and like five things on their plates and only dislike one. So they redirect and see how much there is to be thankful for. She affirms in those moments of teachability, the law of receptivity. Won't you read it out loud with me this time? 
It's the ability to give thanks. Whoops, it's not up yet. So you can't read it out loud. Can we get it up? Maybe, there we go. Thank you. Read this with me, please. The ability to give thanks is directly proportional to the ability to receive with a thankful heart. And here's the question for the morning. Do we have receptive hearts? Our story. Let's go back to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. We could have read this story and actually stopped at several different points. For instance, we could have stopped with um, verse 39, and it would have just given the facts as they were uh, examined and understood in that moment. But then we come into this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisee, and the story, the parable that Jesus tells in the middle of this account. And then we could have stopped there and assumed that there was understanding, that something took place, but then Jesus actually gives the commentary on everything that we've read so far. So when we combine these three pieces, we get the whole story. But even reading the words in our scripture, in our Bibles this morning, I'm really guessing we don't have the full story. So let's stay with it for a few more minutes. We've got three main characters. Jesus, of course, is the focal point of this. But let's look first at Jesus. Jesus is the rabbi beginning to gain notoriety. We've already described how he has been teaching. He's also been conducting miracles. People have seen him in big crowds. They've seen him walking through villages. They've seen him sitting on the side of the road talking. They've interacted with him, some of them one-on-one. This is the life of the rabbi in that day. And Jesus is a rabbi without anyone really to compare himself to because he's saying things and doing things that, that they haven't seen before. This is truly remarkable. Now, we know that he's far more than a rabbi, that he truly is the son of God, God present here with us on earth. But in that time and at that moment and at that stage of Jesus' ministry, all of this was totally up for grabs. And so he finds himself being invited to dinner, and he accepts the invitation. His host is our second character, a man named Simon. His name means hearing which is a fascinating name for this particular moment. Hearing. Simon's a Pharisee. And if we can boil down all of the belief of the Pharisees, a particular group within Judaism and their leadership at this time, we can boil it down to an, perhaps a very oversimplified statement. But Pharisees believe that God only cares about righteous people, people who live out the law, who keep it. Those, those are the people that God loves, and he counts himself as one of those people, and everybody else does as well. After all, he's a Pharisee. Now, this story assumes that, that actually Simon has heard Jesus teaching before he comes into his house. So he didn't just send an invitation to somebody he'd heard about. He sends an invitation and extends it to someone that he has heard teach. One of the most amazing little clues in this is actually down, look with me down in um, verse 39. 
because it, that we're, going to, we're going to come to this stage in just a minute, but look at this clue. He says to himself, after watching all of this happen, he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Why would he have said if this man is a prophet? Because it's quite likely that he might have even been present in Nain or heard about it when the people were beginning to say, a prophet is among us. Remember, we took note of that earlier in the chapter. So, Simon, I believe, has heard Jesus and has out of possibly some interest, but I think overwhelmingly he's invited him into his house to set him straight. After all, he's the Pharisee, and this is an upstart young rabbi, and he doesn't have his facts straight. His message is all wrong, according to the way the Pharisees see it, and so I believe he has invited Jesus into his home to set him straight. The third character in our story is an unnamed woman. In verse 37, we have her biography in one phrase, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Now, universally, in the 2,000 years since this event, people have understood that to mean that this woman was a prostitute. Not just that she was part of the sinful, normal people of Israel, considered sinful by Pharisees and other religious leaders, but that she was really, really, really sinful. She was one who was a prostitute. So this woman is someone who is characterized, as Luke records this, However, not by her title in the village, but by who she is. And I think that is an incredible distinction because Jesus saw people as they were, not by their titles all the time. So here is this woman who comes into the house and is showing something that is very, very special indeed. Let's focus first on Jesus. He's the invited guest. He's invited as a guest of honor. He's invited as the scholar teacher, the rabbi. And because of all of that, even if he was just simply the invited guest, but because of all of those other two layers, Simon should be doing everything he can to be a great host, to fulfill the law that he says he believes in, to show himself as a righteous man. So all honor should be afforded Jesus. He should have received a kiss of greeting, usually on the face. He should have been seated on a stool where his feet would have been washed and his hands washed because they were going to have a meal together. He, they would have been scrubbed with some olive oil and then water would have been poured over his hands and his feet. And then also there would have been a grace that was said. And then he would have been shown a place to recline for the meal along with the other guest. None of this happens because Simon shows what kind of heart he has. Bound by the law and intent on keeping it, he fails to com complete any act at all that was required. It was an amazing, amazing, shocking portrayal that he gives no acts of hospitality to Jesus. 
That's why I don't think Simon is really interested in what Jesus has to say. Jesus could have simply walked out, and in fact, that would have been a common action if for some reason hospitality wasn't given. Just get out of the house. Instead, he stays. And then, without being invited, he goes and he picks one of the benches to recline on at the table to be served. It in itself was an audacious act because the bench that he chooses is the bench for the oldest person at the meal. And we can, I think, in between the lines, know and assume safely that he was probably the youngest at the meal. But without a single word, he simply goes and reclines. Simon has been understood fully by Jesus. You have dissed me over and over again from the moment I walked into your house. I'm now going to take a seat of honor. You wouldn't give it to me, but I'm taking it because I deserve it. It's mine. It would be evident that this there's an incredible tension that has built in just those moments so far in the room. Simon proves that his heart is hard. It's not receptive to the things of God, not in the least. We next focus on the woman. Like Simon, this story assumes that the woman has already encountered Jesus. We get that from all of the conversation right at the end of this chapter. Look at the things Jesus says to her. Um, your, sins have been for, your sins are forgiven in verse 48. In verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, customarily, I think we tend to approach these words in this text with an understanding that what she did in the room brought her forgiveness. What she did in the room saved her, in Jesus' words. But actually, no, that's incorrect. These are statements by Jesus about a previous moment of faith and the forgiveness that this woman has received. A previous moment where she was rescued by her faith, by a response to Jesus. It presumes that she has been among the crowds, that she's seen him and heard him. She's heard him say, you are loved by God rather than you are a bunch of sinners. And she has come to faith already. It's out of what she's received that she shows what she does in this room. It, it, it is utterly unheard of. Here is this woman, known in the village as the worst of the worst, a sinner in the eyes of all of the law keepers like Simon, understood within the village to be the greatest of sinners, and she's there as a woman loved by God, having received with a receptive heart the love of God herself. So while this is going on, we see what this woman does because of not only what's described early in our section, but also how Jesus speaks of it toward the end. Ever since, he says, maybe a little uh, over the top, she's been kissing my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears. She's wiped my feet. She's dried them with her hair. 
what is all of this? The woman came with already the receptive heart made by God, and she's come into the room knowing that that's where Jesus was being received, and it was okay for people of villages in that time to do that. Somebody greats in town, they're going to be uh, dined at this house. You are welcome to come in and interact, sit back, back kind of by the wall. This was customary in that day and time, to be present if someone wished. And so there she is, and she walks in, and as she is there, she is there for every moment watching what Simon does, or, as we have heard, doesn't do for Jesus, his guest. She sees it all. Some have said that they thought this weeping was a weeping of just this thanksgiving. I want to follow uh, a scholar named Ken Bailey here and say to you that I think her tears are tears out of heartbreak at how she has seen the host treat her rabbi. And so her tears are tears of anguish, yes, fueled also by the thanks, because that's why she's come. She's planned that when Jesus is seated as custom and has his hands and feet washed, she's going to just step up out from the wall, and she's going to pour this wonderful perfume on him as an act of thanksgiving. But everything goes haywire. And before she knows it, Jesus has not, been, not only been insulted time after time and her heart breaking for that, but she is now in a position where she can't fulfill what she planned to do. She cannot get to his head because his head is toward the table, toward the inside of the benches, and she is on the outside. She could have asked, uh, she, it comes to mind, I can get to his seat. That's where I can do this. But she also has in mind all of these other niceties that should have been given to Jesus, none of them having been done. And so in an instant, this whole thing comes to mind for her, I believe. This is what I can do. I can do that for him which should have been done by Simon. And in the face of complete insulting action and attitude, a hardness of heart, I can do something for my master. Hear a stream on his feet. She can't ask. She can't speak in the presence of men. She can't ask the servants for a towel. And so she takes her hair down and she wipes his feet and dries them. A woman's not supposed to do that with anyone but her husband in their bedchamber. Never, ever anywhere else. And it shows her incredible sense of heart's effusive intimacy because of the goodness and grace of God that she has received and that she wants to show. It's all out of this receptive heart. And she kisses his feet, and a woman's never supposed to touch a man in that society out in public, ever. She risks everything. And Simon expects for Jesus, if he were really a godly man, to chastise her, tell Simon, get this woman out of here. Get her away from me. But that doesn't happen. He welcomes everything. And then he tells this parable. The two people who each owe someone a lot of money, both a lot, one extravagantly a lot, which one of them, when the debt's forgiven, is going to be most thankful? Who will love the master more? Begrudgingly, Simon says, well, I, I guess it's the one who's been forgiven the most. Yes. And then Jesus points out all of the inequities 
of those few moments before, from him to the woman, and how far apart they are. Simon showing himself to to have a completely unreceptive heart. The woman, a completely receptive heart. So friends, what kind of heart do we have? The law of receptivity one more time. It's the ability to give thanks It's directly proportional to the ability to receive with a thankful heart. So does it meet the criteria? Simple, true, universal, absolute. But beyond my law of receptivity, the real question is do we have receptive hearts? I was raised by good Southern parents. One of the very first instructions I remember receiving from my mom and dad came in the form of a question when someone gave something to me or did something for me. No matter how great or how small, the question from my parents was always, what do you say? And the absolutely correct response was, thank you. Now this went a long way toward helping me know that I needed to have a receptive heart because it's one thing to by rote say thank you. It's another thing to know that we've received and truly, honestly, give thanks. We cannot give thanks if we don't know that we've received. So let's take a few moments to ask God to forgive us or our lack of receptivity wherever we are like Simon. And let's ask God to give us fully receptive hearts like the woman. We can't go in to the week of Thanksgiving without doing both. Asking forgiveness asking for God to give us receptive hearts. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for giving us this text of Scripture and for giving us the opportunity to test out our heart's receptivity. Where we fail in that, forgive us. Where our hearts overflow with thanks, receive it and help us to be more and more receptive to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Friends, as we come to a moment for me to give a benediction, I'd like to just take us there through one more step. This is a glass bowl. 
turned, as you see, upside down. Will you leave this place with a heart that is like the upside down bowl?